Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, Justice Minister Kitty Allen. Look, crime's complex. You know that, I know that. Uh, there's a whole range of drivers. Then, could a clearer path to citizenship mean even more Kiwis move to Australia? And why have so many people quit the New Zealand Army? The reason why I joined was to deploy in the real world and do this sort of thing for real. We'll have that interview for you shortly. When Kitty Allen became Justice Minister, she pledged to prioritise reforms that helped victims of crime. On Friday, she announced several changes designed to give greater legal protections to victims of sexual and serious violence and more control over processes around name suppression. But several of the Minister's reforms have also been slowed down, with some changes to alcohol laws and hate speech reforms delayed until after the election. I sat down with the Minister late yesterday and I began by asking what she hopes this week's law changes will achieve. Uh, look, this week was really focused on making our justice system more victim-centric, putting uh, victims at the centre of a process that's inordinately traumatic for them to go through. Mm. Uh, we looked at a whole raft of changes, things that justice advocates, victims advocates have been calling on for years. Uh, we've been working this package up uh, for quite some time now. Mm. So yesterday was a real celebration uh, for those people that have spent a lifetime advocating for better victims outcomes uh, and so look two parts to it uh, some reforms are packaged around the way that children victims are mm -hmm. treated through the justice system and the other parts really focused around those serious uh, those victims of serious violent offending yeah Okay, uh, I want to ask about name suppression. So one of the changes you announced yesterday mm. uh, considers the input that victims of sexual violence have when it comes to decisions around name suppression. What other changes do you want to make regarding name suppression laws? Well, you'll recall last time I was on your show, actually, I said that one of the main issues, my main focus was that issue around name suppression for those people that were complainants in the process, complainants of sexual violence and sexual offending. That's something that I've really focused on over the last, a uh, few months getting right and that's why we were able to make those announcements yesterday. People who make complaints where they've been uh, sexually violated, the intent I think was probably the right one at the outset, you know, protect those people that are victims of sexual offending. Yep. But, you know, a lot's changed in the world and people want to be able to share those stories. So that was what I really was So my question on. is, what other changes do you want to introduce for name suppression? Yeah, for name suppression, look, I'm not working on anything imminently right now. Right. Uh, that was the step that I wanted to take this term, but right. of course nothing precluded. Let me ask, in principle though, do you think that name suppression is too liberally applied? Well, I think that the legal settings are actually fine. I right. think that there's a lot of discretion in the way that yeah. uh, that the name suppression laws uh, are applied applied within the courts. So, so is it too liberal? I don't know that I'd say too liberal. Right. I'd say that it doesn't. I don't think that there's always consistent outcomes. Mm. And so, for me, the focus I've always had is really about equitable mm. access, making sure that you, as a famous TV presenter, have the same rights to name suppression or otherwise as Joe Bloggs working at the dairy. And I don't know that that's necessarily applied in the same way. Squeaky at the clean. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you've, you've been speaking to you've been speaking to um, victims' advocates. So, so we spoke to. Experts in sexual violence who say that perhaps the biggest thing missing from the reforms you announced this week is a law around affirmative consent. Mm. And so that would essentially mean, to paraphrase, a change from a law setting in which no means no 
into a law setting in which yes means yes. Is that something you would support? Well, with these reforms that I announced yesterday, they were strongly tested with victims' advocates mm. and the plethora of options that they put to us in terms of where they wanted to go around these law changes, mm. this was this is basically the, the, the fruit that they wanted us so to did focus anyone, on. did anyone uh, raise issues around affirmative consent with you? Uh, those issues uh, come up frequently. Uh, but is it, is not, it something you're doing work on? Uh, look, I have made inquiries into what it would take to change those laws. I haven't prioritised mm. them in these first tranche. What we have done, though, is working alongside the Chief Justice Victim Advisor, Dr Crim McGregor is asked her to stress test mm. any of these areas that we need to be focusing on. Mm. So I think, look, it's not precluded uh, from right. a second tranche, but it certainly hasn't been the focus for these. So to be clear, so I think I think uh, affirmative consent laws are now in place in several European countries, uh, the UK as well. In principle, is an affirmative consent law something you think you would support? Oh. Look, I'm happy to do work on it. I, I, like I said, I did seek some advice uh, yeah. when I initially was pulling this package together. Uh, it's, there are some challenges around getting the law fit for purpose, so mm. that's why I've put it onto but, a... But in principle? I haven't taken it off the table. Yeah, I I, taken no, I'm just table. asking in principle if you would Depends support it. Depends where we landed on the consent laws, and that's the tricky part. Law and order is shaping up as a big issue in this election. Do you accept that violent crime rates in New Zealand have increased since Labor came to power? Uh, well, what I will accept is that just last week we saw a downward uh, decline in youth justice stats. Okay, that's that was not, happening. That's not my question, well, though. I, I think, look, I think that, well, I accept that, look, this, sure, you can say that there has been an increase uh, in some areas, but across the board, I think that we're going like the clappers with two really mm. reduced law and order issues, you know, through a whole range I, of different okay, ways. Okay, but yep. my question is about violent crime. So, sure, so sure, adjusted sorry. for population yep. growth, Violent crime rates in New Zealand, if you're to take the annual yep. statistics for acts intended to cause injury, have increased roughly 30% mm. since Labor came to power in 2017. Look, horrific. Nothing of you know any violent crime, any violent offending, mm. one single type of offence of that ilk is Why is, is it problematic? So much? Well, I think you could probably look at a range of factors. Uh, what we are doing, from no, my I'm, perspective... Not for what are you doing? Why do you think it's increased? Well, no, you've got to look at what I can do. I can no, only do... I, I yeah, mean, no, my to understand the, the problem, changes. to understand why there's been an increase in violent crime rates of 30% since Labor came in, that's a massive spike. So, yeah, so, so why has it happened? Well, I can only look at the areas which I'm responsible for. Mm. That's getting the which legal... Which is justice? So, no, so, so no, well, why Jack, has it happened? It's uh, getting the legal settings right, right? And mm. so just this year, uh, we've already introduced uh, two pieces of legislation targeting gangs, violent offending, proceeds of crime, mm. those incentives, those drivers uh, for why... So those are the drivers, you think? I think that they're in part... I mean, look, crime's complex. You know that, mm. I know that. Uh, there's a whole range of drivers. And so what you'll see is a whole government working pretty hard, going pretty right. hard across a broad so, range of areas. So during the same period that violent crime rates have increased 30%, the prison population has decreased 20%. Can you point to any evidence that those statistics are not related? Well, obviously, look, correction sits outside of my portfolio. That sits with um, Minister Davis. I know that what we have decided mm. to do on law and order... Sorry, I'm not asking about law and order and, and what your plans are. I will, I will ask about... Well, that's yeah. it. I think, I think to understand... But you're asking me to look at the drivers of crime, yeah. and I've said that they are multifaceted. And so There's I'm asking you what, what reducing the prison population, how that's influenced it. 
Well, look, I, I don't have any uh, information before me that, that tells me uh, what the impacts of a reduced prison population are. What we do know, though, is that when people go into prisons, uh, the earlier they go in, the longer that they Should stay in, the more likely they are to go on to create further victims of crime. Shouldn't we know that? If we're, if we're reducing the prison population by 20% and violent crime rates have increased 30%, shouldn't we be looking at whether those things are correlated? No, I think that there was a clear strategy because we know that mm. there is greater harm caused by people who stay in prisons for a longer period of time. Mm. You can look at, and there's been multiple reports that have been done on this, that the longer people stay in, uh, in prison, uh, the earlier that they go in, the more likely are, that they are to go and create uh, lifeline impacts of further victims, further harm. Sure, but you it's can't, the university you can't, you can't tell me you know what, that. Yeah, you can't tell me what, what, what is driving that increase in violent crime rates, but I can look at those numbers and note that the prison so population has decreased 20%. Yeah, so the, so, so well, the I'm asking you if there's well, any the correlation. It seems like an obvious link. No, I, I, I don't think so, Jack. I don't. Well, well, by all means, give me evidence that, that Well, no, I'm saying I don't have related. any evidence to be able to counter right. that for you, okay. and that's not really what I've been focused on. We're focusing on the what I can focus on mm. as the Minister for Justice is making sure we get the legal settings right. Sure. Like I said, we've introduced... Uh, uh, laws, law changes that t focus on proceeds of crime, a driver for yeah. causing more crime. We're yeah. focused on making, giving police uh, more abilities to make greater interventions. And, and as you say, taking a victim-centric approach, and, right, which is, which is what I want to ask you about approach. as well. So three years ago, the government introduced $20 million to fund uh, and support victims of non-fatal strangulation, including funding for almost 900 expert witnesses to testify in court every year. Now, that was to help victims, but in November, News Hub revealed that a majority of experts funded so far had given evidence not to support victims, but evidence in the defence. Why were you spending money to help defendants more than victims? Yeah, look, this, um, there's a whole range of reasons for that. Uh, one of those reasons is that it is harder for victims to be able to access the resources that they need, which is why we're bringing in these reforms that mm. I announced yesterday. The whole process from woe to go, mm. as a victim, you don't have a lawyer. No. As a victim, you don't have a singular person that's mm. dedicated to you. So what, victims, we are trying to do through, what we are trying to do with the, uh, the, uh, the raft of initiatives mm. that we've introduced yesterday is make sure that victims know what is afforded to them, make sure that they get proper stewardship through the justice right. system. And that's been a failing of the justice system to date and something I've been very clear about. So, so, so to be clear, six months since that report from News Hub revealed that more defendants had accessed that fund than victims, Victims. Do you know if that's changed? If more victims I haven't, have I haven't reflected okay. on those numbers uh, um, this morning. No. Uh, once again, uh, your government has delayed action on alcohol marketing and sponsorship in sport. Uh, by some estimates, alcohol harm costs New Zealand almost $8 billion a year. The Prime Minister said he asked ministers to volunteer legislation that should be delayed. So I want to know, did you personally offer that part of your alcohol reforms up to be delayed? Well, let's be really clear about what we're doing. When I came on your show last time, I said that the key thing that we wanted to do mm. was increase community voices when it came to the sale and supply of alcohol. Mm. We are absolutely proceeding with changing the laws to give communities greater voice when it comes to implementing local alcohol plans in their communities. Yes, I'm asking that you about the marketing and sponsorship side, which is, no, that, that, first part, that first part, yeah. let's be clear, that's going ahead, you're charging ahead with that, I'm Correct. asking about the second what, part. And that was the commitment that we made. Sure. So, so that second part, mm. did you offer that up to be delayed? 
That second part was part of those programs that was reprioritised. Did, did you offer it up to be reprioritised? It was a part of a whole range of suites. So yeah, but did you personally, as Minister, offer that up to be reprioritised? Oh, look, those are conversations that are strictly between Cabinet colleagues, uh, so I'm not going to get into that here. But did, what I will say is that we are not scrapping that part of the reform. It's very important. And uh, we have you're every intention. It, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we have okay. every intention of being able well, to introduce those reforms. So did you yeah. speak to any lobbyists working on behalf of the alcohol no. industry before no. that was delayed? No, no, no. No conversation? Uh, not to my, the best of my awareness, unless they approached me uh, somewhere that, and I didn't know who they were or what they were doing. Right. No, I, I, that, look, okay. that's not been something that we've allowed to influence our decision. Okay. Last time I was on your show, I made it very clear, not afraid of uh, alcohol lobbyists. For far too long, they've had far too much say when it comes to the design and sale and supply of alcohol. I was really clear about right. that last time on your show. Okay. I've committed to those things, which is why we're increasing the community voice when it comes to creating the conditions by which yes. the sale and supply of alcohol that, can that be I understand that part provided. of your reforms, but I'm, I'm interested in the parts of your reforms point. that have been delayed. So, so New Zealand no, kids you were asking me about whether or not to... the alcohol lobby had gotten in my ear, and I said yeah. last time on the show and this time on this show... Well, the alcohol lobbyists. It's a are, are not, legitimate yeah, question, yeah, but, is it not? Well, yeah. well, but what I'm saying to you, Jack, is that okay, now let me we remain committed to the to the okay, to, the, to the, the issue, which is okay. making sure communities have a greater voice. Okay, so so let's that's talk about New Zealand communities. New Zealand kids are exposed to alcohol marketing through sports sponsorship 1.4 times a day. For Māori and Pacifica kids, it's mm. four to five times higher. Different research published by Otago University last year found a quarter of all suicide deaths in New Zealand yeah. involve acute alcohol use. Advocates say time and time again, one of the biggest things we could do to immediately create change is change the laws around sponsorship and marketing of alcohol. How is this not a bread and butter issue? This is, look, it's not something that's off the table, Jack, and that's what I'm trying to tell you. The thing that has been most important to us as a government was fixing the broken laws around sale and supply and the LAPs. We're committed to doing that. Mm. We will, when we can, get to these uh, next phases of the reforms. And this is not the only area. Mm. Look, this is the law reform component. You've got my colleagues, uh, Dr Aisha Farrell, working in alcohol education prevention. Mm. This is something that's incredibly important to us. But really, we have to do things in stages and phases. So, and, so we will, and this is something that we've said So why not just support Chloe Swarbrick's bill? Oh, look, uh, look, I don't think that these types of reforms should sit in a member's bill. I think that they have to be taken by government. I think that you need the full uh, strength of uh, a government. It's multifaceted. It would, the bill wouldn't have passed without the support of, of a majority of members. So, correct, that's how Parliament works. Sorry, yeah. what was so, that? So why, so why do you need to pass this through government? No, because it's not just about the law and the Parliament. You, so what happens when you're making laws, yeah. good laws, is that you ideally have multiple agencies working together mm. to stress test. I that's what Chloe Swarbrick did, though. What was wrong with her no, law? I don't, I don't around, think around marketing and sponsorship? That, that bill wasn't led by officials. That was She She designed that herself, and that was great. So, and so I what, what was wrong with it? Good, good on her. Look, that's we can do as much as we can. Mm. I know that you're, um, you know, passionate advocate for um, my good friend Chloe, and I've got a lot of time no, and respect for her. Just a passionate advocate and for I asking love, questions. No, so, and, so, I, and so, I really respect the work so, that so she's done. So what was wrong with the bill? So we've worked together on the first part. Mm. No, the, the, that's not the issue, Jack, is that we don't have... Uh, we have to be able to step through mm. and do things in kind of a timely way that we can manage. We can't manage doing an additional uh, reform at the minute on these areas. But the, the point is that Chloe's done the work here. 
she, 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 she introduced the bill. That was great. She, she's she done all of that. She's provided it's all the research. The she's provided the evidence. So, yeah. so all you really had to do was support it. No, I, I disagree absolutely with mm. that. Uh, law's a lot, a lot trickier than to just put a few words on paper mm. and say, voila, here's your law. It requires resourcing. It requires agencies working together. It requires fundamental change across government mm. uh, when you're implementing a whole range of different Still areas. Still haven't seen what was wrong with it, with the, with I the law think itself it, look, and the proposals. I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get into Chloe's bill. I think that, you know, she's mm. a good, passionate advocate for drug and law reform, mm. good mate of mine, and I respect her, her intelligence, her leadership and her stewardship of these issues, but uh, it's not something that we can commit to as a government right now. It's not off the table uh, come next, uh, uh, after the election. Uh, 1,179 people received criminal convictions for personal cannabis possession last year. You've smoked cannabis, eh? Hey? I have, yeah. Is that just? Look, I, I, I personally, um, I, I, I voted in favour of the referendum, uh, you know, for law reform. So that's where I personally sit mm -hmm. on these issues. I think that they should be, you know, um, but we went to a referendum. So is, it, is it just? We went to a referendum on these issues, Jack. You know mm. that, I know that, and uh, the people chose not to reform these laws. We're stuck to that as a as a government, uh, and we've increased discretion, frontline discretion for police officers to be able to make uh, to treat this as a health issue, which is where it rightly right. should sit. So, 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 is discretion enabling discrimination? Well, that's always the argument, right? You yeah. increase what, discretion. No, I, I think it depends who's administering those dis uh, the the. the a lot of discretion, this has always been the problem, is that it's in the eye of the beholder. Mm. We've seen a big push towards diversifying the mm. frontline police officers to diversifying the judicial officers. So, so is it allowing for discrimination? No, well, that, that's what I'm saying. I, I, mm. don't, I don't have facts uh, so here to support Of those me, almost 1,200 cannabis possession convictions, why are 50% for Māori? Well, that's the state of play across the entire system. 50% mm. uh, of Māori uh, in the prisons, uh, in the prison minister are Māori. So, so the law uh, that you just, you, you just promoted to me, I've allowing never police ever officers said, to use discretion, yeah. no, you just I've said never that was one of the changes you the justice system is just. Right. I think that we've got a heck of a lot so, of work so, to so go. So that law is allowing for discrimination? No, well, I, I, look, I, I'm not going to sort of comment specifically on that because I need to... 50% Māori? No, look, well, look, that, that's the problem. Do you think Māori make up 50% of cannabis users? I don't know. I simply don't have evidence of that. Justice Minister Kitty Allen. After the break, I asked the Minister about hate speech reform. Hoki Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. For the second part of our interview with Justice Minister Kitty Allen, I began by asking about hate speech legislation. Last time you were on Q&A, you promised to introduce hate speech reforms before October. Quote, I guarantee I'll be introducing a law that I intend to have concluded and put into law by the next election. Correct. Did you break that promise? No, I didn't. Read the transcript. I said, I guarantee I'll introduce a law which I intend to pass by next election. Uh, I introduced that law. Uh, it went through a select committee process um, and uh, reprioritisations earlier this year mm. and meant that it's not going to proceed uh, by uh, the election. Uh, and we, and I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Uh, you can see just how complex the issues, because you've got rights rubbing up against each other. Um, you could see that there was a lot of different views in the community about what should apply mm. and where. We heard from the Muslim community in particular that a slowdown of these laws and bringing them in after we sent it to the Law Commission mm. was the right thing to do. I think that 
if you look at from the the, the Royal Commission's recommendations, mm. and you know we took those on board, we wanted to implement, give effect to those hate speech laws. Quite a few years now. And then we uh, went to consultation on a much more expanded brief, mm -hmm. uh, and that's where you had, you know, my community, the Takatapui community. You had mm -hmm. many other communities that were brought into the frame. As we went through the, that process, you could see it was just incredibly challenging. It was a, it was, it, I thought it was a couple of like, like you think with law, yeah, it changed a few words and she'll be right. It just wasn't. I had officials it's and a bit naive, isn't it? Oh, uh, well, some of the questions. Uh, yeah, look, I think. Well, that was ultimately the recommendation, right, from yeah. the Royal Commission. Okay. Let's change a couple of words and then it'll be OK. So, so let's talk about the changes under the Human Rights Act. So, so before you kicked it to the Law Commission, you had planned to extend the current protections under the Human Rights Act uh, to religious groups, so extending yep. them from ethnic right. groups or racial groups yep. into religious groups as well. Yep. But not to rainbow groups, not to disabled groups, not to other groups. Why, why was that? Oh, because we said that would give effect to the Royal Commission's recommendations mm. and they were squarely focused on those religious groups. So we went back mm. to our bread and butter, if you will. Now, when we made that announcement, it's fair to say that nobody was super happy with that. Mm. And um, I, I think, look, for myself, I think been a part of some of those communities that were particularly aggrieved. I uh, was very sensitive to those views and opinions. Um, we all know that, you know, the slogan used to be when we were growing up, sticks and stones, yeah. they hurt your bones, but words will never hurt you. That's not <laughs> the reality for most of us that have lived experience of being cast out <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So I think what we've done by sending things to the Law Commission, we've got Professor Claudia Geiringer, who's going yeah. to be leading this work. She's exceptional. I think I'm really hoping that we will, and I, I have full confidence actually, that we're going to have well thought through, well considered mm. laws that will be proposed for our country. Would hate speech laws have stopped the March 15th attacks? No, I don't think so. Have you given the Law Commission a specific timeline to prepare advice? Uh, I'm not allowed to, of course, because they're an independent entity. Uh, so, look, well, we're, we're in their hands as to that. But what I do have full confidence in they used to dealing with complex mm. matters like these. Uh, I think last week you had somebody on your show, a freedom, uh, a free speech advocate. One of the things that struck me in her comments, uh, you know, she had quite a blunt view of just how simple the law should be, should be something that applies to all in equal fashion. I don't know, we've taken a different approach here in New mm. Zealand. We have carved out groups on basis of uh, where you were born, mm. uh, et cetera. Shouldn't it just be any group? Well, I mean, that was a point she made last yeah. week. I, I, I've sort of fought it's on that. problem with intersectionality, yeah. right? Like yeah. every single time you say, well, I identify as this or this or this or whatever, like, wouldn't it just be easier to say, OK, to future-proof these laws, any group? Well, I, I think that there's oddly a bit of an argument to be made there, but what we don't want to do, though, is mm. make that instrument so blunt that we inadvertently end up either eroding uh, the protections that we have uh, for particularly marginalised groups within our society yeah. or do anything so crass that we create more harm. And that's mm. where I think that we have collectively fallen on this point. We're not confident that the proposals where we landed right. were going to be uh, more protective than corrosive. Mm. So I do have confidence at the Law there? Commission. Well, it's challenging, Jack, if you look across the country, yeah. uh, the world, really. You see the challenges that we have domestically are ones that other jurisdictions have gone through themselves to get to a so, happy end point. So, be, so being involved on the front line of this has given you a new appreciation for the complexity around trying to define laws in this space, right? Do, no. it, it, can I, can, let, let me ask this. 
Is there a possibility that you will not introduce hate speech laws in line with those Royal Commission recommendations? It's not something that I've considered. I haven't taken it off the table for a very clear reason. Mm. I do think, you know, look, we have to give it a real spin. Yeah. Let the Law Commission do their work. I want to see what they come back with because if there is a way that we can introduce mm. laws in New Zealand that give effect to our domestic mm. conditions here that work for us, then we must be bold enough to try. But do you agree that no law is better than a bad law in this situation? I do agree that no law is better than a bad law, for sure. Donations. Right. You were asked about receiving donations from Ming Fu the Race Relations Commissioner, mm -hmm. and I appreciate you were surprised at the time. <laughs> uh, you said in the, in the moment, quote, I didn't receive any monetary donations from Ming Fu. You accept that was incorrect? Oh, yeah, look, so I was stretching my memory. I remember sitting there uh, as Benedict threw me the question. I was racking my head. I knew the in-kind donation off the top of my head were dealt with Ming Foon's wife, uh, Ying, who owns mm. that shop. Uh, so that had been our primary point of uh, engagement. I think, though, what I will say there is that it's really challenging. You don't, as a politician, people probably may or may not know this, yeah. you don't have a real solid recollection of every single person that donates to your campaign. It's part of the reason why, actually, we've just introduced a law to, you know, make it even more transparent yes. around donations. So Did any you not? I mean, it was a, that was the second biggest donation after the local party. Yeah, no, no, you, like I genuinely, hand over heart, yeah. swear on my child, no, I didn't, uh, I don't remember all of the people that donate. Mm. That's just how these things work. Uh, but what I do know is that I was, I operated within accordance with the law. I over-disclosed in the interest of transparency who made donations to yeah. my campaign, and that's something I'm very uh, passionate about. And three, um, you know, we've checked. Did I breach any cabinet mm. manual rules? No, I didn't. I was a backbench MP. I received a donation. I made the disclosure. So, you know, we've landed there. To be 100% clear, you were not involved with the appointment of Ming Foon. I no. don't think anyone is disputing that no. anywhere. But given your relationship with Ming Foon, should you have made a conflict of interest declaration when you became Justice Minister? Look, I, I wasn't required to. Should I you haven't. Have? No, yes, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. I wasn't required to. Yep. I'm happy to do it. Like, and actually, what should, I should you have the time though? No, I'm, I'm even going a step further. I'm going through any of my electoral donations. Mm. Just chuck everybody on the the, the conflict. It's, it's easier that way because we've got nothing to hide. Except that I no one else is under your sort of ministerial purview, and that it's your decision ultimately as the Minister of Justice to appoint the Race Relations Commission. Yes, but I haven't made any decisions get, with respect to Ming Fu. Sure. I haven't had any engagements with respect to Ming Fu. But it is a different relationship to any other person who might be donating to your campaign, isn't it? So be very clear that I would not uh, have any role with respect to any upcoming decisions sure. about Ming Foon. I understand and that. as I guess the Minister of Justice, I wouldn't receive any contributions from The him. question is one of judgement, though, and when you became Justice Minister, knowing that you had received donations from Ming Foon, if you should have declared that at the time. Oh, look... The Cabinet Office didn't say that I'd broken any rules. I'm confident that I'm happy to disclose any single person. They already have been disclosed in our Electoral Commission disclosures mm. anyway. It's quite simple to bring those across to our conflicts for Cabinet. Uh, so that's probably where I'll likely head. That sounds like no. What was that? Yeah, that sounds like no. You don't feel like you should have declared it. 
Well, that's what I'm saying. I haven't yeah. made any, there's been no breach. So that's the okay. problem with this story is that there hasn't been a breach. It was all open and above board and I haven't made any decisions with respect so, to that particular donor. So from donor. a process perspective, what happens next year when his term is up if he wants reappointment? Well, I would be conflicted out of yeah. that. So that, and that, that applies for anybody. That go I to have an associate a, minister? Yeah, it would go to a, a minister that doesn't have a direct funding relationship with Ming Food. But we know with him, uh, he's made a, apparently quite a few donations across the political aisles, so, you know, I mean, that's ultimately a decision for him. We can only do what was within our control. Yeah. I can't make decisions with respect to his future. That is Justice Minister Kitty Allen. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can send us an email, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, if you prefer. After the break, improving the IQ of both countries or not so much? We're in Australia with New Zealand's High Commissioner as she celebrates a major milestone for Kiwis living in Oz. Kia ora te whanau, welcome back. New Zealanders living in Australia will once again have a path to citizenship. The change follows a significant, rapid warming in relations between the New Zealand and Australian governments. One News political editor, Jessica Much Mackay, has been in Australia to cover the announcement. She sat down with the High Commissioner to Australia, Dame Annette King. It brings us closer in terms of the way we treat New Zealanders and Australians in each of our countries. Since 2001, we have seen a lot of the advantages that we had of living in Australia that Australians have in New Zealand disappear. And this brings most of them back for New Zealanders living in Australia. While we did not make the changes, we always waited for the day when we would be able to get some reciprocity back, and that day has come. Why have you waited so long for this day? Well, in the end, it's a decision by the Australian government. It's not through a lack of uh, lobbying. It goes back for former Prime Ministers John Key um, and in fact Jacinda Ardern and, and our current Prime Minister have all lobbied for this. It wasn't until uh, the change of government uh, when Prime Minister Albanese uh, set it on the table straight away and said we're going to make the change. So a lot of work had gone and a lot of lobbying, a lot of angst over it um, and, and finally um, we have had uh, the action from, and it is Prime Minister Albanese who has made this happen along with several of his ministers. You obviously are based here. Why has this been such a hard sell for the Australian people, for New Zealanders, it seems fair. I don't think it was the Australian people. I think um, New Zealanders are highly regarded here. We, uh, we work hard. We, in fact, are paid higher than most Australians. Um, we are good settlers here. It's, it wasn't the Australian people. It was government policy of the time. Um, and for some reason, they decided that, um, that New Zealanders would have advantages taken away from them, uh, rights, privileges, if you like. Um, but as I said, we did not change in New Zealand and this day was going to come and this has been the policy of the current government since 2016, 2019 they said they were going to do it. They didn't win until last year and one of the first things they did when Prime Minister Ardern came across was for Prime Minister Albanese to say we are going to make changes to make sure that New Zealanders have the same rights in Australia um, as they have in New Zealand. You would have been around the table when some of these discussions were having with previous leaders. What were the issues and the fish hooks to getting this across the line? Well, it's a really good question because once I go into a meeting and would be arguing
arguing for it. There was no real logic for it, um, except to say that um, the previous government was concerned about border security, um, national security. Although New Zealanders are not um, causing problems in Australia, of course we have um, some bad ones, just as Australia has bad ones in New Zealand. But um, it, well, I think basically it was a government policy of the day um, and around national security. I mean, you had really highly regarded negotiators and people like Callan Clark. Why didn't the lobbying work until now? Well, it's a really good question if you get the opportunity to ask um, some of the ministers that were in the last government because we never really got a satisfactory answer as to why they would not improve the rights of New Zealanders. In fact, from 2014 and 2016, we saw the rights being eroded, not improving. And how frustrating was that for you? Very frustrating. Um, and of course, you will recall in 2020, uh, former Prime Minister Ardern um, stood at, at Kirribilli House alongside Prime Minister Morrison and said, you've got to stop treating us like this. These are New Zealanders who are allowed by the Trans-Tasman Travel Arrangement to live and work in Australia, and many have for many years, and, and we, we need to be treated better. The only irritant that I could see in the relationship was the people-to-people -people relationship and how that had deteriorated. It was far more obvious in New Zealand that it deteriorated than it was in Australia because here in Australia it probably didn't it didn't actually, um, there wasn't much notice taken of it. You know, 25 million people, 5 million people, New Zealanders fitted in well, they weren't a big issue. How much of a concern is it though that New Zealanders will pack up and move over here, we'll see a brain drain. Well, we've always had New Zealanders coming to Australia. That's not going to change because the idea that you're going to come over here and get citizenship immediately, no. You're going to come over here, you're going to commit to working and living in Australia and you're going to have to live here for four years without the support that you get when you're a citizen and then you might apply. Just as in New Zealand, an Australian comes into New Zealand, they become a permanent resident immediately then after five years they get citizenship. So the idea that you'd be all rushing over thinking this change is going to give them something today, no, people will still make those decisions about where they live. But don't you think it would be now a more appealing prospect? And does that concern you in any way, especially with teachers, nurses, that sort of thing? We've always had movement across the Tasman. And if you look, about 670,000 New Zealanders live in Australia. About 80,000 Australians live in New Zealand. If you look at the percentages, it's pretty similar. So you'll have movement both ways. Of course, we don't like to lose our nurses and our doctors and our teachers, um, but we'll, we've always had that movement. And the thing that has to happen is attracting our own back home. And, and I think that there are many good reasons why New Zealanders would want to live in New Zealand. I also wanted to talk to you about the issue of 501 deportations. Earlier this week in a newspaper here, we saw a headline saying Kiwi Crims Free Pass, and that was talking about the number of um, deportations going down because now Australia is taking a more common sense approach 
to that. But what does that say about the attitude of Australians here? Do they really feel like they... Are they feeling like they're getting a rough deal out of all of this? I only saw that in one newspaper of all the media of Australia, um, well known for its headlines, um, and I don't think that is the attitude of Australians. What I've found in my fifth year here in Australia, Australians like New Zealanders. They think that we're good people, they like our innovative ways of, of dealing with issues, that we are their best friends. And you only need to look at the Lowy Poll Institute, Lowy Institute's poll every year to see that we top the poll in terms of friends. No, that is not the view of Australia, not the view that I have picked up living here in Australia. What does this announcement today say about our relationship at the moment with our, with our mate? I'd say it's in the best shape it's probably been in, in a long time. It closes that, that gap that I talked about in terms of where is the rub in the relationship. And it is, was in that people to people, the treatment of New Zealanders, the treatment of Australians and the difference. The 501 issue um, has been helped through the changes, through ministerial direction. Um, and that goes to the point that Albanese made, common sense approach. And we're now seeing the results of that. That doesn't make Australia less safe or New Zealand less safe. We'll always deport people, and Australia will deport people who are bad people. No one's saying we shouldn't do that. But a common sense approach does mean that people who have got connection to country, who have lived here a long time, will have consideration of them staying here. Well, someone who's been here for a few years herself, um, what's next on the agenda for you? How much longer have you got in this role? I finished my fifth year at the end of December, um, coming home, so look out. What should we look out for? What will you be doing next? I, have, I look, it's time for me to retire. I have been a long time in public life um, and it's time I spent some time with that lovely husband of mine. So you really feel like you'll be able to keep out of the political sphere or is that too, too big an ask? It's been a good training ground here because I'm, I'm not involved in politics as such. I'm involved in, with, with both sides of politics, with, with politicians, with diplomats. I've had a good training to return home and watch what's happening. That's One News political editor Jessica Much Mackay speaking to Dame Annette King. After the break on Q&A, less than a month from the budget, is there any political appetite for new taxes in election year? Kia ora, welcome back. The IRD has been studying the taxes paid by the wealthiest 400 New Zealand families. Treasury has also been researching the effective tax rate of all New Zealanders across wealth and income distributions. Both sets of research are due to be released in the next few days. Jeff Nightingale is a tax partner at PwC and was a member of the government's last two tax working groups. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. Morena, Jack. What do you expect to learn from the research being published this week? Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. Um, and if I had to guess what it'll show us, it'll say that the, the, the wealthy, 400 wealthy families in New Zealand are by and large paying the legal requirement of tax. Um, but if you compare that against their economic income, not their legal income, but their broader economic income, mm. that may give it an effective tax rate lower than the statutory tax rates. I, I think that's probably what it's going to tell us. It's interesting that you say that the, the legal standards for, for tax because the Revenue Minister David Parker has clearly been concerned about fairness in our tax system and just because someone is paying their legal requirement in his eyes might not be fair. 
Well, well, that's right. And I mean, the, the thing is, there's the legal obligation for tax, um, and, and it's important that we all comply with that. And then there's whether or not that produces a fair outcome. And once you start talking about fairness in tax systems, you're bringing value judgments to play. Uh, that those are political value judgments, mm -hmm. and, and it's quite reasonable for all of us to have a different view on that. Um, but what he's getting at is the, the percentage, if you like, of total economic income versus the tax paid and saying, if you're very wealthy, he has a suspicion that, that you may pay a lower effective tax rate than perhaps if you're a um, wage and salary earner in the, in the middle class. And from your position, is that suspicion likely to be right? I, I believe it will be right, um, but, but we've got to remember that's by design. Mm. And, and, and the main thing there is we don't tax a lot of capital gains that relate to businesses or land. So, so and, and as you get more wealthy, you acquire more of those assets and you have more chance of earning capital gains. And so, so that is by design. And I think the question that Minister Parker wants us to think about mm. is, um, is that design correct? So what have you made of this process so far? Well, I, I, I'm not a... I was keen that we get the research, that mm. that was a tax working group recommendation, but the process has been not great. and It's been quite intrusive on those families. Uh, it's been supported by a power that was rushed through under urgency. Um, so that's a bit disappointing about the process. Um, and, um, but, but on the other hand, the, the data will be very important for policy decisions. Right. You talked about the, the difference between an effective tax rate and tax rates paid on income, yep. like most of us have through PAYE or similar. From your perspective, as it stands, is New Zealand's tax system fair? Um, so New Zealand's tax system is broadly fair. There are some unfairness parts, unfair parts of it, and those are by design. And, you know, a critical unfairness is that if you're a low income, low or middle income household mm. with children, your effective tax rate is almost nil or sometimes positive. But, you know, you actually mm. get money from the government. Whereas if you're a single household with no children, your effective tax rate's quite high at the same level of income. So that's a deliberate design unfairness. Mm. And at the other end of the scale, we at the moment have a, have a you know, m politicians have fallen over on the, on the rampart of capital gains tax a number of times. We've, we, we make a choice through voters at mm. the moment not to tax a significant chunk of capital gains and that gives rise to this effect for the for the wealthy. I will ask you about a CGT in a couple of minutes. <laughs> I know that's a contentious issue and uh, ears right around the country will be pricking as we speak. Inflation eats up a lot, not just for us as yep. individuals, but for the government and yep. its revenue. Is there a revenue crisis from the government's perspective at the moment? No, there's not. And in fact, inflation is, is the government's secret friend um, because in, along with inflation, inflation happens to the goods we consume, but it also drives up wages and incomes. Mm. And because we have fixed thresholds at which our marginal rates get in. You get this concept of fiscal drag or bracket creep and it drives more people into higher tax rates. And so the inflation at the moment is probably giving the government by stealth another one to two billion dollars of, of revenue a year. So, so, so th th there is no tax revenue crisis. Our tax system is very efficient by worldwide standards. It, we, mm. we, it produces a lot of revenue for relatively low cost. Um, 
so so there's no there's no revenue crisis, no shortage of tax in the short to medium term right. that would drive a government to do something bold. That being said, the government and, and opposition parties have political incentives to try and give some sort of relief to middle and lower income earners at the moment. The National Party's policy is that it will lift those tax brackets yep. in line with inflation. Is that the sort of thing the government might also be considering? I, I, I think they might be. That's yeah. I mean, our toughest tax rate really is, is the 30 cent rate at $48,000. Mm. I think the median income is 62000 now. So, so at well below the median income, you're paying a very high rate of tax by international standards. And mm. so uh, providing some relief there would, would get into the, the middle income earners. Um, but trouble is then you've got to fund it. It's a zero-sum game. So that's what I want to get to. <laughs> if the government, and I realise there are a lot of ifs here, if the government or opposition parties were seeking to offer relief to middle and lower income earners and they chose, through a value judgement, to target wealthier individuals, one option being teased is a CGT. Chris Hipkins, of course, as Prime Minister, hasn't ruled it out, unlike his predecessor. But really, a capital gains tax, given how contentious that is, is it realistic? I, I think it's highly unlikely um, uh, ahead of the election um, for a few reasons. One is there is no revenue crisis, so, so it'd be hard to make the case convincingly for it. You could, you could do it on equity grounds, on fairness grounds, but not on revenue grounds. Mm. Um, secondly, it, 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 that, it, it's a very complex tax. It would take 18 to 24 months to design and legislate. It really would, to do it properly. Um, and thirdly, and probably the most powerful reason, is I just don't think they want to spend the political capital on it. I mean, mm. it looks to me like w with the policy reshuffles and things, that they're, they're very focused on winning the next election, and capital gains tax hasn't proven a winner for mm. a number of Labor um, sort of election campaigns. OK, I want to throw another couple of options at you. What about a wealth tax? Hi highly unlikely. Tax Working Group recommended against a wealth tax. Um, they're, they're really difficult to make work. The, 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 Two issues. One is the valuation. Most mm. of New Zealand's wealth is held in uh, businesses which are not listed, so mm. you don't know what they're worth until you sell them. So valuation's an issue. And the second is cash flow. You might have a, if you have an annual wealth tax on your on the value of your assets, how do you fund it? You, you end up having to sell assets earlier than you might otherwise, mm. and so that's economically damaging. So, so just to explain that, if you had assets that were worth $200 million, for example, but actually weren't drawing a huge revenue, yep. and you were required to pay a 1% wealth tax, yep. $2 million a year, you we, might have to sell some assets that you, you would correct, otherwise. Correct, and you might sell them earlier at a, at a different value than, than you would otherwise, right. and, and that can cause economic inefficiency. So I think a wealth tax is highly unlikely. Only the Greens are strongly advocating for a wealth tax. Um, is there any other option that, that might be something that could be considered? Uh, look, look, land tax rears its head occasionally. Um, and there's a lot of good economic theory for a land tax. Um, there's some unique complexities in New Zealand with Māori land uh, and with agricultural land as to how mm. you'd go about a land tax. Um, so I, I also think that's unlikely. Um, you know, there have been rumours flowing around about a new marginal tax rate of 45%. I, I think that's unlikely. Um, uh, the only thing that I wonder about is whether we'll see some change to the trust rate. Uh, it's right. currently sitting at 33 below the 39 cent top marginal rate. That might be an anomaly that the government talks about. So, so if the trust rate was changed from 33 to 39, would the additional revenue that that brought in be enough to make up for changes to tax brackets? 
No, no. Right. So, that, I mean, that would be a, again, that would be an, a, a principle-based change. I don't think it would generate mm. an enormous amount of revenue. You know, it would be a meaningful amount mm. of revenue, but it's not going to be the several billion needed to lift the thresholds at the 30 cent rate. It is going to be a fascinating week. One final question for you then. From, from your time working on two different <coughs> tax working groups, what have those experiences taught you about the politics of tax? Yeah, well, they basically taught me that, that the, the policy wonks like, like me and others, um, we can design everything perfectly, but someone's got to sell it to the public. Um, and in the end, tax policy ends up, it's, it, you can't just analyse it to an answer, it ends up at a value judgement. Mm. That value judgement is what we elect our politicians to do, and that's hard. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate Thanks, it. PwC partner and member of the last two tax working groups, Jeff Nightingale. After the break, as submissions for the Defence Review come to a close, we are in the trenches, well, sort of, to ask why so many soldiers are leaving the New Zealand Army. Kia ora koutou, welcome back to Q&A. Submissions on the Defence Review come to a close this week, and with retention rates way down, there are calls for major changes to how New Zealand's army operates. Here's Fena Owen. Wednesday, Landguard Bluff outside Whanganui, where this army base is under attack. Effectively, we've got an insurgency group that's made its way into Whanganui. They've established themselves in the city itself. Don't panic though, this is just an exercise with Linton-based combat specialists to train rifle platoon commanders, and they're into it. Stuff like this is really good because we have enemy party. Um, that's, it's unfortunate that it's the boys that we know, but actually having to have force-on-force -force operations is actually quite good training. And being in, in an environment outside of Linton is quite nice. Lance Corporal Jack Cavell came off seven stints working in MIQ facilities. We did feel like we were doing something that was actually meaning and worthwhile to the country. As we were saying before, there are actually a lot of deployments going on right now, so doing anything was good. It did drag on for a while. In the last two years, the regular defence force has lost 29.8% of its uniformed trained personnel. Talking to a lot of my friends who have gotten out recently, they do miss the camaraderie and the friendships that you can make. It really is second to none compared to anywhere else. You won't have friends anywhere else other than how you do here. That's something retired Major Tony Williams would attest to. The former SAS officer has been in and out of the Army since he was 15, with a variety of roles and deployments finally leaving in 2019. That's plenty of time to think about how we can do defence better. Well, I'd like to make the point up front, you know, that anything I say is, is uh, with absolute respect and utter half for all the past, all the present and all future service people. I mean, I have a total respect for them. He believes for decades our military's tasks and scope has been too broad with mounting geopolitical tensions. That needs to change quickly. We need to focus, bring the focus from Northern Hemisphere going and helping these allies who in the end just see it as a token effort anyway, and regardless of what we think, is that do something around our own southwest Pacific zone to help them be secure, be well and be pros prosperous.
the need to tilt more to the Pacific has already been signalled by the Defence Minister, building on a long relationship in the region around humanitarian and disaster relief and defence exchanges. Among these troops in Whanganui are soldiers from Tonga and Fiji training to lead their Pacific platoons. New Zealand would now struggle to rustle up battalion numbers. Tony Williams thinks we should instead be developing highly trained specialist units along the lines of the US SEALs. Well, in the eyes of our allies, be highly effective on operations and not a paper division that we're basing on sort of World War II theory and philosophy. That doesn't work. It's not working and people are getting out in droves. But British and Australian Defence Forces are also contending with staff attrition, a problem often attributed to the cost of living crisis driving people toward private sector salaries. I've lived in three states this year. I've met so many new people. Australia, though, has a head start in its recruiting, picking up personnel from its successful but expensive gap year programme, a kind of national service. I've been saying for a long time that we need a gap year in New Zealand. A lot of people leave high school, they don't know what they're going to do. So it's not conscription? It's, no. It's, it's a voluntary... It can be voluntary, can't it? Back at the unfolding situation in Whanganui, there are concerns the insurgents may have reached the base. So we have a problem because the enemy uh, have been spotted from those bunkers on top of the hill and most of the troops in the base there have been sent into Whanganui to patrol the town. Time to let the dogs out. This is one of our infantry support dogs. During our last attack, this is the only dog that hasn't managed to have a bite. Right. Um, so he's so super is he, excited. So, so is the insurgent, is he in a bite suit, is he? Yes, he's yeah, in yeah. a bite suit, um, just for safety reasons. So, um, And they're well trained. There we go, over he goes. While the government has handed out bonuses to personnel, it's now working on longer-term retention measures and awaiting the outcome of the defence review. This retired soldier has seen reviews come and go, but still has hopes for this one. They won't be afraid to make some big changes. Back on the hill, they're closing in on the enemy. You can see he's still trying to run away. The soldiers are telling him to stop. They've released the dog. The dog will hold him in location, and then the soldiers will take him down. He drew the short straw then, this guy here. So he's one of your men? Yeah, he's one of our soldiers, yeah. He's a good actor. He is. Um, they all really, uh, they all get into it and play they the do. enemy party. It's been a successful exercise, which will now be reviewed in detail. The reason why I joined was to deploy in the real world and do this sort of thing for real. So these guys and women are really into it, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. This is better than standing in an MIQ hotel lobby. Oh, they love it. Like, they love getting out there and doing their job. Um, particularly, you know, when you've got dog handlers and that sort of side and you're trained to get out there and um, do this sort of stuff. When this you... is what it's all about. This is what it's all about, yeah. Fina Owen with that report. And yes, in case you were worried, it looks like Whanganui was successfully recaptured by the army. Kapai te mahi. Komatu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi kia koutou i ngā Thanks for your feedback. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am.